I'm Jessica. I'm an alcoholic. Um, I'm happy to be here tonight. Um, I was asked by Josh, and I'm always happy to step up and do service. Um, my sobriety date is October 16th, 2018. Um, I have a sponsor. She knows she's my sponsor. My sponsor's got a sponsor, um, and so forth. Um, I'll just kind of stick to the experience, strength, and hope format. Um, my experience, what it was like. Um, I seemingly came from a pretty normal family. You know, my parents were still married until I was in my 30s. Um, we were not a normal family, though. There was a lot of um, anger and rage uh, from both of my parents. Um, they handled it very differently. My mom was the volatile one. She was the one that um, would throw knives, break dishes. Um, memorably, once she drove the minivan into the garage door um, on purpose. I got into a car accident with me in the car because she was driving drunk, not driving drunk, uh, driving angry, um, et cetera, et cetera. They had a very very volatile marriage and a lot of that was because my parents both grew up um, with very traumatic upbringings and I was listening to a podcast earlier today that was talking about you know how trauma tends to roll downhill and boy does it and you know so when I was a kid I didn't know how to handle emotions I didn't know how to handle um, conflict other than to run and hide or to freeze and fawn um, so I ended up being bullied severely um, all through grade school and in high school I was basically just um, checked out of the social circle for, for the most part like I didn't really have friends and I didn't know how to make friends so I just kind of floated and suffered in silence and and did my homework and got good grades and imagined a better day would come um and somehow like my life would be transformed um my sister on the other hand my older sister was very she was the the uh limited drinking and drugs and and all of that in high school and she got me drunk my first time when I was 16 um, we had strawberry margaritas made with Jose Cuervo, pizza, and vodka, and it was probably some really cheap-ass bottom-shelf charcoal-infused plastic bottle nasty-ass shit, and, you know, at that point, I'd had a fairly large margarita, and I was like, I'm gonna try doing shots, because that's what they do on TV, so I lined up five little juice glasses on the counter, and poured, like, you know, a finger of, of vodka in each of them, and I was like, one, two, three, four, five, and by that time, I was feeling pretty good, and it was, it was pretty amazing, I was like, this is so much fun, I'm gonna, like, I'm gonna go dance in the living room, and so there I am, 16 years old, in my pajamas, spinning in circles on my on my socks on the hardwood floor and um being like this is amazing right up until the point where I you know my sister realized I was really drunk put me to bed I spun 
vomited all over myself on the floor and had to clean that up the next morning. Um, but that was my first entry into drinking and alcohol and I loved it. And I didn't um, start drinking alcoholically really until college um, because I was balancing a full-time job, a full-time course load, um, and I didn't know how to sleep. So I was drinking alcohol, drinking so I could sleep. That's, and that's where my alcoholic thinking started was, oh, I'll, I'll just use alcohol to make my brain shut off so I can fall asleep like right away instead of it taking two hours after I finished my homework for me to fall asleep. And by that time, it's, you know, three in the morning or something. And it seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> but um, obviously it wasn't a good idea or I wouldn't have landed myself in um, AA. Um, and, you know, another part of my story was that what really happened was I, at 20 years old, started dating a man that was 10 years older than me and he was abusive. And with my upbringing, with the bullying that I'd already gone through, with very low self-esteem, self-worth. I I didn't have any defenses. I was defenseless against the toxicity that rained down on me in that relationship. So instead of, you know, dealing with that stuff because of what was modeled for me at home, I didn't I didn't know that I had, you know, been basically sexually assaulted in this relationship. I, did, I didn't realize that I had been emotionally abused. I didn't realize a lot of that until later. I just thought, you know, we were not compatible and I moved on and it was fine. Um, so I didn't get therapy. I didn't get help for it. Um, but I had all these trauma points by that time. And instead of dealing with it, I developed an addiction. First, it was food um, and uh, denying myself food and anorexia, actually. And then it was drinking. And by the time I was 25, I was able, I, I was drinking a bottle of Jack Daniels by myself every day or two. Um, I was barely making it to my classes, barely graduated. I was suicidal. And I kind of... And I, and I ended up moving back home because I didn't know what else to do with myself. Um, I was depressed. I was horribly lost. And the only time anything had ever made sense was when my father, who was a narcissist, was running my life for me. So I moved back home. Um, and proceeded to, you know, like every Friday night, pass out on my, on my own bedroom floor instead of sleeping in my bed because I would drink too much. Like clockwork. <laughs> uh, it's a pretty ridiculous way to to live um and you know i i slowly came out of that into a more controlled state but i was basically going on binges and i you know it's funny every time we read more about alcoholism i always hear myself in that because i have tried all, everything that i could think of to keep myself from drinking too much like I even at one point like put a piece of masking tape around the line of the bottle that I was like okay I'm gonna drink this much wine and no more to this you know to this masking tape line and 
that didn't even work. Um, I, I wrote a contract and signed it and gave a copy to my therapist setting how many, you know, how many drinks I could have on a particular day of the week. And that didn't work. Um, I think it was kind of a foregone conclusion in my own mind, because by that time it was probably like, you know, 2015 or so. And I had met some people who were in AA and I was still actively drinking. And so I knew AA existed and I knew there were people who had like long time sobriety that I looked up to that had amazing lives. And that's okay. You have two minutes. Okay. Thank you. It goes fast. <laughs> and so when I finally got here, it was one of those people that took me to my first meeting. Um, and it was because I knew that this, that AA existed. I knew that it helped people and I knew that it helped my friend that I was able to accept the message that had already at that point been running through my brain for years saying, you know, every time I would be too drunk, you're an alcoholic, you're an alcoholic, you're an alcoholic. And when I got here, things got better. It took a while and I'm still a work in progress. Um, I think I'll be a work in progress for the rest of my life, but um, I can genuinely say that I like myself better this way. I like the person I am becoming and have become. And I really hope that y'all can take something from my sob story <laughs> and, uh, and just know that we all drink probably for the same reason. And it's to not feel whatever it is that we don't want to feel. But the feelings are always going to be there on the other side of the bottle. So eventually, you just have to have the courage to face those things. Sometimes I still don't want to face them, but I do my best. And uh, that's all I got. Thank you. Hi, everyone. My name is Dyke. I'm an alcoholic alcoholic <clears throat> also I have periodic hiccup kind of reflux when I speak so be patient if I just zone out for a few seconds um, I loved hearing your story Jessica um, because you are myself many years ago at the beginning of a journey that has proven to be life-altering, life-sustaining in my case. Uh, and, and I agree with you that we are very similar to one another, and it's a willingness to let each other into our experience that allows us to help one another and to, to get sober and stay sober. Um, when I do a, a share like this, it's outside of a meeting I regularly go to. I recognize a number of names and faces, but for some reason, <clears throat> in my mind, I make this more important to spend the day thinking about it. So there, there's are three versions of this share that I'm giving this evening. The one is you 
the one you're hearing right now. And with any luck and some reliance on a higher power, this will be enough to keep us all sober for the next 45 minutes or so. Then there's the one that I've been giving to myself in the walls of my apartment all day long, just to make sure that things were revved up and ready to go. And that was, of course, much better than the one I'm doing right now. I can tell already that that was much better. But the really good share is the one I'm going to give after we're done and say good night. Because then I'm going to have the right thing that, gee, if only I had said, it will all fall into place. And that's a facetious way of saying that I'm, I trust my higher power, but I also prepare when I do a, a share like this. It's says in some of the literature, which I read a lot, and for the record, I've been around for a number of years. I got sober on August 30th, 1982. So I'm about to celebrate 39 years. And that's a lot of recovery, but there's still only 12 steps, it turns out. And um, <laughs> there are as many ways to do them, I guess, as there are people trying to do them. But when you boil it down, it comes down to those same 12. Um, anyway, um, that, that's kind of where I jumped into the, the process of getting and, and trying to stay sober. Um, I've really been blessed first to find the rooms and be willing to attend AA, and secondly, to help people in the course of my own recovery, because AA has this wonderful reciprocity that allows us to help other people and to feel good about it. So if we want to feel good about ourselves, we help other people. I mean, what a deal. Yeah, everybody wins. I guess that's the original win-win. Um, it says in the literature somewhere, you know, the Father doeth the works. I think that's like a higher power. Um, we'll say for our purposes it is a higher power. But I used to have a little sign on my desk that says, the Father doeth the works, and underneath it it said, but the Son dialeth the phone. And that was my, <laughs> my recognition of the fact that, you know, we participate. It doesn't just get handed to us. And what I'm going to talk about tonight is the, the challenge of being sober and doing the program. It's not just a matter of going to meetings, whether they're Zoom or whatever they are. Um, I will say on the Zoom or not to Zoom issue that I keep hearing debated, you know, my, my issue isn't whether it's in person. My issue is the coffee and the goodies. I mean, <laughs> clearly there's a shortfall here. I was thinking of bringing some cookies for my share, but that would have been a little rude sitting here and eat cookies in front of all of you while you were either paying attention or if those of you who are really... Uh, represented by little black squares are probably on PBS watching some like it hot. That's, 
So if you suddenly go black here, I know that you've had enough of my recovery and you'd rather go watch something like that. It's a good movie. You should watch it at some point. Okay, so um, I came to AA to get sober. That's the only reason. I didn't come to become to be a good person. I didn't come to have a spiritual awakening. I didn't even know what a spiritual awakening was. Um, I came to get sober, and I needed to get sober because I couldn't do it by myself. And like Jessica, I can relate to that more about alcoholism list. I think all of us can in some way. Uh, we've done our variation on that theme, and, you know, we refer sometimes to the rooms as the last house on the block. And that was kind of it for me. I was 38 when I came to AA. You do the math, that makes me 76, um, which is an astonishing feat of longevity <laughs> accomplished by not drinking and not dying. Um, but when I came to AA, I didn't, didn't really know to target anything other than sobriety. And um, I had been in jail. I had wrecked a car. I had gotten too drunk driving. I had attempted suicide. You know, I've got the, the credentials, but I thought I would focus instead on, as I said, the, the process of recovery itself. So I came to my first AA meeting, uh, which scared the hell out of me. Um, and I maintain to this day that the bravest thing that any alcoholic or addict does is walk through the door for the first time. I think that's an incredibly difficult thing to do because in our heart of hearts, we know that we're giving up our best friend. And even though our best friend is busy killing us, uh, we are not about to turn our back and walk away. So coming to the rooms of AA is, is dangerous activity and we know it. And we know in our heart of hearts that life without alcohol is going to be dreary and gray and arduous. So we come only with the recognition that we have no other choice. And as it says in the 12 and 12 on the first, uh, first step, it says, who wish, wants to admit complete defeat? No one. And I certainly was not ready to admit complete defeat. I was ready to go to a meeting. So I did. And I heard people talking about steps, and I didn't have the least notion what they were talking about. I kid you not when I say that for the first several weeks of AA, I thought there were literal steps that you went somewhere and walked up or down, depending. But that's how 
fuzzing my grasp on reality was. And I kept waiting to go to this initiation when we would walk up or down the steps. Um, since then, I walked up and down the steps a lot, <laughs> and, and number of times, to, to say the least. But I, I started after a while to stop the physical reactions that occur, the shaking, the fogginess, all that other stuff that we're all familiar with, um, and started to hear that people were talking about 12 steps. They were also talking about 12 traditions, and they were also in um, sort of sneeringly talking about the 12 platitudes. <laughs> if you don't know the 12 platitudes, you, you missed an era in AA when they used to display signs in meetings and say things like, easy does it, or first things first, or think, think, think. I don't know if any of you have seen those in meetings, but it used to be pretty common, and, and let go, let God, that was the one that I thought, okay, that's, what the heck does that mean? Um, and gradually, of course, I learned. Um, so I started doing the steps. I did what I was told. I got a sponsor. I started on the journey of my self-analysis, looking at myself, doing my fourth step. And I came up against a brick wall after about two years. And the brick wall was sexuality because to that point in my life I had tried to pass as a straight man and I'm not. I'm a gay man. And if I'm going to be rigorously honest, I need to be rigorously honest about that aspect of myself. That's a fairly significant identifier, but it's certainly not the only one that people have to deal with. And the reason we have to be rigorously honest is that given the slightest little chink in the wall, AAs will, like little rats, run right through the hole and out to the bar. If it's possible that they could find a variation on the theme, they'll do it and, and run. So... Um, it's important that you know we be as thorough as we can, be as sober as we can. Um, and what that involved for me was seeking outside help. It talks about that in the literature, and I don't know what that. Well, I do know that there is still, I think, um, uh, welcoming to get assistance from any source that we choose um, that we feel will help us but I was raised in a home where getting help from psychologists or psychiatrists was an absolute no-no because it meant that I failed, my parents failed, that it was just pervasive failure everywhere you look so not only did I have to deal with how I presented myself to the world, I had to deal with the reality of a social environment that didn't support getting well. Um, 
over time, um, I was able to reverse a lot of my thinking and worked with a couple of wonderful doctors to whom I am forever indebted and to people in the program who's, who were encouraging and uh, non-judgmental and um, didn't feel the need to join the so-called debating society and um, have conversations about whether one should or should not get outside help, should or should not use pharmaceuticals for doctor-prescribed recovery. It was seen as um, part of what we needed to recover. So I know that's still controversial, but um, I just wanted to mention that. So um, as I did that day at a time and took on some sponsees and felt like I was starting to um, contribute to AA, I felt um, like my life was starting to engage. I relocated to, I had relocated to the Bay Area. I um, had a decent job, actually a good job by that point. Um, and I started to experience what I've heard people call the cash and prizes, which <laughs> I think is not why we get sober, but it's certainly not something that I feel we need to say no to. So I like to uh, like to share a story. I guess it's a story. It's sort of a gruesome reminder. But if some of you are old enough to remember the assault on the World Trade Center in 2001, almost 20 years ago. Um, you remember the, uh, the terror that people felt and the inescapable situation that they were in. And I happen to keep, don't happen to keep, I have a clipping that I took from the paper at that time. I'm going to hold it up to the camera. Because what it shows is people on the upper floors of the World Trade Center looking out at the smoke and looking out from the windows that they, they know their lives are over. So it's a very dramatic picture and it's a bit of a heartbreaker, but I think you can see that. You can see people looking out from the windows and the smoke coming by, and we know now, because of retrospect, that they didn't get out. And I keep that with me because it's one of the greatest prompts of gratitude that I've experienced in my life. You may say, well, how can you be grateful for the collapse of the World Trade Center that killed over 3,000 people. And the answer is that it shifted my thinking. It shifted my thinking from, well, yeah, why don't I have fill in the blank to, oh my God, look at all of this that I have. 
I have sobriety. I've been given the gift of sobriety. And I'm working for it. I'm doing the steps. I'm doing service. But I've been given that gift. And if I were standing at that window, would I be comfortable with who I am and how I am at this point in my recovery? And the answer was yes. And the condition that I put on it, and you may think this is totally bizarre, but think what you will, I decided to buy a sports car. That's what middle-aged men do when they have a midlife crisis. This was just, you know, <laughs> it size large. But it, I mention it because it's embarrassing, but it's also, it's also a form of acceptance and appreciation for the life that I've been given in recovery. I think the gratitude is, is action. Gratitude is helping other people. Gratitude is um, doing more than is expected of us in a situation where we can be of, of service to other people. So <clears throat> getting sober does not mean that we need to be suffering along in dark, cold days alone somewhere. It means that we can live fully and joyously and, uh, and support one another, as I said when I started. So that's my World Trade Center story. I want to tell you another one. Look at my time here. Um, Yes, I was told it would go fast, but I was also told that your know, higher power is to doorknob, so what do I know? Um, <laughs> um, the, about three, two, two years into recovery, I met a man and we became partners and he was in the program. He had about a year less than I did and this was back in the the time of the first pandemic, known as AIDS, um, the 1980s, and, um, and he died of AIDS, but he died sober. And his passing, my um, sponsor at the time said, Dyke, if you can stay with Michael, through his journey, you will experience one of the most profound things that will happen in your life. And if you can't, nobody will blame you. But those are your choices. And I love this guy. You know, I didn't want him to go. I didn't want to be without him selfishly. But it was pretty clear that there was a one-way ticket and that he was not going to get better. And... I've never had any trouble believing that there's a power greater than myself. I'll hopefully have time to come back to that. But suffice to say, I wasn't fighting that battle. And Michael would be in and out of the hospital with symptoms and complications and complications for the symptoms. And he was brave and strong and sober and Toward the end of his life, he was in the hospital in San Francisco, and I would go to see him. 
and say goodnight and go home and hopefully I'd see him the next day. And when he passed, I had seen him that evening <clears throat> around 8.30 or 9 o'clock. I left and said goodnight and um, went home and got ready for bed and was about to turn in for the evening and the phone rang and Michael's voice very weak said I want you here it's pretty clear that what he wanted was someone to be with him so I got dressed and I got in the car no I didn't I stopped where I was, and I sank down to my knees, and I said, help me, God. And I felt a presence that I had never felt before. And basically said, without saying the words, I'm with you, and everything will be okay. And after some time had passed and I'd sort of regained my equilibrium, I got up and went to the hospital and was with him that evening when he passed. But when I talk to people, <clears throat> clearly it's still an emotional experience. <clears throat> but it's an emotional experience as much for the opportunity, as my sponsor had predicted, to experience that connection to another human being, as it was for any of the other reasons that are obvious. Um, and ever since then, I've had a stronger conviction that there is a higher power moving in my life. You know, the, Father doeth the works, but the son dials the phone. Um, and, and I count on that higher power. And I rely strongly on the third step of our program to get me through when I'm up against something that's challenging and that I feel I can't handle. And you know, the reality is, I don't. I don't handle it. And that's the, the beauty for me of that realization, that spiritual awakening, if you will, that allowed me to see that I don't have to live my life alone. I don't have to make tough decisions by myself. I don't have to steer in the dark as though there were no guiding lights because there is direction if I ask for it. And that direction is available to all of us. So I believe that when we open ourselves to input from a power greater than ourselves, we get understanding and guidance of a nature that we otherwise never experience. It says in the 12 and 12 that there are perhaps as many forms of spiritual awakening as people who have them. <laughs> That's a, hard to refute that statement, isn't it? 
But what that points to, I think, is that you know, there is vast variety, but the net effect in all cases is the same. And what that net effect is, is the ability to match our life flow with that of a power greater than ourselves to align our will with that of a higher power. And I used to resist that, and I, and I don't anymore. And it's not just because I'm an old man. It's because the resistance is using energy that is wasted. I should be using that energy to know the higher power better and to be of service to people in the program because that's how that's revealed. Um, go to meetings and, um, and stay connected with all of you. Um, let me close by sharing with you um, another story like my World Trade Center one. About five years ago, after a series of increasingly unavoidable, inescapable symptoms, I went to the doctor and he did a number of tests and he said, your, suspic your suspicions are correct, you do have Parkinson's disease. But don't worry, you won't die of it. <laughs> I said, is that supposed to make me feel better? And he, <laughs> and he said, no, I'm just telling you. I said, I know, doctor. I know what you're telling me. You're telling me it's a slowly progressive disease and that the body is going to give out for other reasons sooner than than um, Parkinson's. But what I didn't say to him, and what I have in my back pocket, and will have for the rest of my life, is the ability, the choice, and the tools to live my life one day at a time. And the difference between today's experience of that life and tomorrow's, whether or not you have Parkinson's, is minuscule. So as long as I'm in the day and in the moment and in connection with the higher power, a day at a time is quite manageable. It's fully manageable. I should add that I went out and got another car, which I subsequently gave to my daughter. <laughs> That's the kicker. But... You know, the journey continues. Uh, I said when I started that, you know, this is, is a difficult thing to do. Who wants to be completely honest? Who wants to, you know, go down that list that's in the, the big book and, and names the things that we need to do to, to fight our way back to a state of self-esteem and... Um, and belief that we can be of service to others and to ourselves and that we can enjoy the, the richness that life brings to us 
we don't have to be goody good people. We simply have to be willing to blend and join our lives with that of the higher power. Thank you all for being here this evening, giving me a chance to share. I appreciate your patience with my small issue. Be well. God bless.